keep those California Indians down. Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. We have seen, even within the past few months, from between November and now, we've seen an explosion of cases um, increase for American Alaska Native community. And subsequently, you know, there have also been an increase in the number of deaths. Today on American Indian Airwaves, we get an update on how COVID-19 is impacting the larger urban indigenous populations and fascism in the United States. Here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone In the first segment of today's show, we go to the heart of the larger urban Native American population in Los Angeles County, California, and look at how the COVID-19 pandemic continues to impact and ravage the larger urban Native American populations. Our guest for this segment of today's show here on American Indian Airwaves is Dr. Andrea Garcia, who's a medical doctor from the Mandan Hidatsa Narikara Nations and is an appointed commissioner with the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission. She also works with the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, the American Indian Counseling Center, and is a board member with the United American Indian Involvement Center here in Los Angeles. Our other guest for this segment of today's show is Alexandra Ferguson Valdez from the Klingit and Athabasca Nations. She is the executive director for the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission. I recently spoke with both of them on how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting the larger urban Native American population. I start with Dr. Andrea Garcia by asking her how much has changed since we last spoke in July of 2020 and what the test positive COVID-19 rates are, the number of people moving on, and whether or not there is adequate and sufficient resources for testing. And now, Dr. Garcia. So I can say that since the last time we spoke in July, that was definitely in the early months where early public health data told us that our community in particular wasn't necessarily using the sort of more mainstream ways to access testing in terms of like the online portals at the county level or even like a 211 phone number for people to figure out where testing is. However, since that time, we have seen, even within the past few months from between November and now, we've seen an explosion of cases um, increase for American Alaska Native community. And subsequently, you know, there have also been an increase in the number of deaths. So today's uh, positive cases is 1,688. And then we have 25 deaths at this point in time. So, yeah, so I would say the growth even within the past few months, has been unprecedented um, and largely pretty quiet, um, you know, amongst just sort of mainstream media and coverage of 
of in, uh, positive cases. I also think that that's probably due to um, the fact that cases for our community in particular are grossly underreported. And we know this because the definition used um, or reported out by the Department of Public Health uses the American Indian Alaska Native alone um, definition. But in reality, our community is extremely diverse and oftentimes reports being American Indian with other races, mm -hmm. um, and even American Indian in combination with like Hispanic, for instance. And so when you use those numbers like nationally, mm -hmm. like that doubles the amount of our population. And so just from that alone, we know that those, those particular cases are underreported. But we also know too that we also have more risk factors for COVID. And again, we just feel that it's just completely insufficient in the, the total case numbers. And it's probably a lot worse than we're seeing. Um, I would say anecdotally too, I think a lot of us know more and more community members being okay. affected. Like it's, it's getting closer into our, our circles. Um, and so just, just from a sheer anecdotal perspective, like it, it is definitely here. And I, I wish you had United American Indian Involvement's um, health project on because they could also probably speak to the increase in numbers of um, cases that they've been having. Um, they have been offering testing for a while and now they're offering vaccinations. But on our COVID um, working group calls, they've, they've been sharing the, the increase in um, cases in their patient population alone. So wow. it's pretty wild. Andrea, given everything that you've stated already, and, and Alexandra, uh, hopefully you can speak to this as well, do both of you feel that there are enough uh, resources available, you know, for example, uh, COVID-19 uh, test centers, and do you feel that these and, and our community members aware of these kind of resources, and are there other contributory factors that you feel might um, skew or underrepresent or misrepresent the number of urban indigenous peoples that have tested positive for COVID-19 or perhaps moved on that we simply are unaware of? Of. Yeah, I would say that, um, again, just speaking on uh, in terms of what the COVID working group has done. So that group is comprised of several of our LA community based organizations. And we try to share information with each other, develop culturally um, sensitive material so that each of our organizations can share similar messaging. So in terms of like what we've done with that, you know, um, as a group, we've created a PSA that aired on KABC, I think an LAUSD channel, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, which directed folks to our um, website. But also social media-wise, we've developed materials to also, again, like attract people's attention and then direct them to those resources. So short of those efforts and having all of those community-based organiza organizations share it, like, you know, of, of course, we're not going to be able to reach every single American Indian Alaska Native in LA County. And that's where we rely on like larger media outlets to, you know, to, to sort of usher people to, to the right places um, to access testing. So I think like, in that regard, you know, we've been doing as much as we can. But what we've also heard is that, you know, transportation is a big thing. So you think about these testing centers, not all of them are drive up, but um, 
Oh, I would say the majority are. So for those people who rely on public transportation, like their options are a lot more limited in terms of finding a walk-up site. Um, and also potentially like putting themselves more at risk if they have to wait in long lines. Um, or maybe, you know, there's mobility issues and it's like transportation, but mobility in terms of like having to use a wheelchair or something like that. And so for that specific subset of people, um, are they getting tested as much? My guess would be not. But again, it's 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 all anecdotal based based on what people are saying. I don't know if Alex had anything to add to that. I would just say since July, just broadly, I mean, speaking generally, like where we, where we were at in July as a county and as a region for testing was so different than where we are now. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, I think testing in general is just much more accessible to the population broadly, like the larger county population, right? Far more than it was in July of 2020. And so my hope is that with the increase of access generally speaking, that people are increasing or accessing testing more. And that's my also my hope for like vaccination, right? Like if we look at where we've come over the courses was that 10 months, it's changed so dramatically. And it's like night and day, truly. Um, and I don't know if we were sharing this at this point back in July. I mean, my calendar and all my like timelines are so muddled. But, um, you know, the Ferdinandia Tatavian Band of Mission Indians, as well as the Cultural Community Services, has partnered with Core Response and the city of LA to do um, pop-up testing at San Fernando Rec Park, which was open to all Angelinos, but you know, also very much because of their partnership, reached out to our American Indian Alaska Native community. Um, and that pop-up site has since actually turned into, I believe it's a five-day-a-week testing site, um, which is pretty amazing. And yeah, so I just think generally speaking, testing is in a far different place now than it was back in the summer. And I hope people remember like the importance of testing while we're, you know, rolling out vaccination. In terms of the progress, right, we're at that point now where, you know, we are seeing vaccinations slowly trickle out. Uh, Andrea, as you mentioned, UAI, uh, I believe they received um, a couple hundred uh, vials of the Moderna vaccine. And, and I was wondering if uh, both of you can maybe speak to that in terms of your understanding where we are in terms of the vaccines that um, are being distributed out to the larger urban native uh, communities or institutions that are in turn making them available for communities. And I was wondering if you could speak to that process and where what you're seeing right now. So Andrea, if you can start first. Yeah, so um, as you know, UAII is one of the urban Indian health organizations. As, which is part of the Indian Health Service. And so through that relationship, that is how those particular um, vaccines are being distributed. You know, the IHS is comprised of, um, you know, their urban Indian organizations, tribally run clinics, and then directly operated facilities. So as part of that urban arm, UAII gets the doses and distributes according to federal guidelines, right, or right. CDC guidelines on, on how to prioritize folks for vaccination. And so just like we're doing at the county level, UAII has different tiers of access. And so tier 1A, for instance, um, includes healthcare workers, people working directly um, with individuals, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then we, um, you know, have elders within that, that grading system as well. And so without completely speaking on behalf of you, 
although I am involved um, as their board chair, um, I would also direct people to their social media sites. So the main uh, United American Indian Involvement Facebook has information on how that tiering system um, is organized and also how people might call in um, to get on the wait list and subsequently triage to receive those vaccinations. So short of UAII having their own um, doses of Moderna vaccinations, then we look at um, what's available at the county level. So again, county is operating by the same metrics, you know, with tier 1A, 1B, et cetera, et cetera. And the other advice too that is, is largely told to people, for those people with insurance, right, like contact your health provider to figure out if your particular provider is vaccinating individuals. And if you can get it that way, then go for it. If not, if you to access it, then yeah, county definitely has their, their means of rolling out um, vaccinations. And I understand, I was on a call just before this one, um, that the county is creating or has created or um, opened up a website to, um, for folks to figure out like where they are in that grading process. And I know Alex mentioned earlier about certain age groups being um, vaccinated by Thursday. Alex, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, so the um, website that Andrea is speaking about is vaccinatelacounty.com. And it's part of this public service campaign that the county released last week called Know Your Tier. So this idea of like figuring out where you are in these prioritization tiers, right, that we speak of 1A, 1B, etc. And I think that is an incredibly useful tool to find the right, right? Because I think as individuals, we are being inundated with messaging from the federal government, the right. state, the county. You know, you're getting it from all over the place. And, and at the end of the day, what's most relevant to all of us is the county in which, which we live in. And so um, because when you hit certain tiers, it's going to be based on your county, right? Like right. Riverside might get to 1B before LA County does simply because of our demographics. We are a much larger county than any county in the state. And you know, like, so where we, I mean, it's most pertinent to find the relevant county information. So I encourage everyone to go to vaccinatelacounty.com um, and get the most up-to-date. And also like we spoke about earlier, you know, this is, this is a huge logistical undertaking, arguably, like nothing like this has ever happened really in anyone's lifetime and are who's currently living and um, changing quickly. So what you might be, you know, like on a Thursday, you might check again in a couple weeks and it could very well change, you know, it's like things are changing rapidly. And so that will be the best source of information to get relevant county information if you live in Los Angeles County. I would also share that um, yesterday, Supervisor Hilda Solis, who is also the board chair, of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors signed an executive order um, green lighting 65 and older to begin getting vaccinated on Thursday, January 21st. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves and an interview with Dr. Andrea Garcia and Alexandra Ferguson Valdez on how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting the larger urban Los Angeles Native American populations and communities. And now back to the interview. I do remind everyone that that is, you know, dependent on availability of doses. But as of this Thursday, the 21st, 65 and older will be um, able to get uh, vaccinations if they're available. So again, 
Um, like Andrea said, if you have private insurance, important to reach out to your uh, provider. They're offering it. Um, I would also share that VaccinateLACounty.com has other sites. The county um, released or announced, I believe, last week five uh, mass vaccination sites. One is the Forum in Inglewood. Another one is at Cal State Northridge. A third one is at Six Flags Magic Mountain. The fourth one is Pomona Fairplex. And the fifth one is LA County Office of Education in Downey. Um, and also the City of Los Angeles last week converted Dodger Stadium from a mass testing site to a mass vaccination site. As of last week, they were still um, inoculating healthcare workers. But again, things are changing rapidly, so I would also look into what who Dodgers is providing to at this point. So those are some of those bigger mass vaccination sites that are popping up both in the city and the county of Los Angeles. Yeah, so I think right now we're is more of a game of how many doses we have coming into the county and properly communicating that with people so that people's expectations are realistic. So your prior your tier might be you might be at your tier, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have enough doses at that point. So. Um, it really comes down to like strong communication um, and keeping people's expectations tempered, I think. Exactly. I, I just want to underscore that um, that supply definitely is not going to meet demand at right. the moment. Like they're producing vaccine as fast as possible. Right. Um, and so not only at the county level, you know, as Alex said, if you're in your tier but you can't get access, like that might be something that you want to expect. And then also at the local level, Larry, since you asked about specifically like vaccines allocated for American Indians, Alaska Natives, right. UAII might be facing similar challenges where IHS as a system, you know, is only getting a certain number of vaccines, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to cover all 2.1 uh, folks at IHS services. So just um, asking for people's patience and understanding of the different metrics that they use to, to distribute vaccines is so important. Andrea, you touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering, how are our own medical professionals doing? I mean, they're, they are frontline workers, they're chronically being exposed in many cases to patients and, and our own community members that may have tested positive for COVID-19 or are COVID-19 positive. And, you know, they're working in environments like this on a day-to-day -day basis as frontline workers just simply trying to help those community members in need. So how are our own Native uh, professionals on the front lines, how are they doing? Yeah, so I mean, I can say for myself personally, like I am working in a mental health setting and virtually everything is done by telephone or video, right? So I I definitely don't want to say that I am up in that mix, but I do know based on a lot of colleagues and friends, you know, they, and, and also like being part of like the physician community on like other different types of group platforms, people are burnt out yeah. physically because they're working more than they've ever worked before, but also mentally and emotionally, um, you know, sort of dealing with the ramifications and seeing the loss of life firsthand day after day after day, and then juxtaposing that with what they see when they leave the hospital and go into the streets and see people acting as if, you know, nothing is happening, that, that they're invincible. And so I, I think in all of these different spaces and conversations with my friends on the front lines and um, other groups that, that people are frustrated. And that frustration, you know, eventually also leads to burnout. And so it's, uh, it's a really critical time for a lot of, you know, and uh, physicians, nurses on the side, but all of the other essential um, work that is being done um, by other folks, right? Like people who work in grocery stores, um, sanitation crews, et cetera, 
all of those people are taking the precautions and putting um, themselves at risk. And um, yeah, I think people are burnt out and tired. Alexandra, what about from your perspective and, and the work that you're doing as the executive director of the Los Angeles City County Native American Commission? Yeah, I mean, so speaking personally, um, I feel very privileged that, you know, I'm, I safely work in my home every day. I do think where, you know, some of that burnout comes from, from, you know, anybody living right now is simply just, you know, there's such a, the needs will never fully be met, you know, and that feels like there's constantly work, right? Because you need to do everything you can to meet people's needs. And our community entered the pandemic having, you know, significant needs that have been exacerbated from this pandemic. Um, And so sometimes, you know, it feels like an uphill battle, but I just Mm. think that, you know, um, where I personally continue to find motivation and strength is um, the COVID response working group. I mean, that group has been so incredible for providing and sharing resources and just really, um, yeah, just being a good check-in moment for everyone about just refocusing and continuing to focus on community and meeting needs and getting time for um, really recognizing that individuals need to take some time for self-care too to then be able to in turn give as much as they can. And I think that's for everyone right now. I mean, we've been living through some pretty wild times now, almost approaching a year. You know, we're at 10 months um, and things. um, But yeah, again, like my position and what I do, I'm very fortunate that I, you know, I don't, I don't have the added stress of exposure, which I can't even imagine what that does to an individual if you have to work out of the home and you have to interface with individuals all the time and you don't know what their personal choices are. I mean, that is so hard because that's beyond your control. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I just, yeah. No, no, it does. And I think, you know, sometimes we, uh, you know, folks take for granted the people that we see out there during these precarious times, right? The frontline workers and 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 people are so you know perhaps concerned for themselves and their immediate family we forget to think about you know the elevated risk and and along with that elevated risk the kind of emotional and physical toll that not only does it take on the individuals but you know how does that um, transmit over to their family members or people you know they cohabitate with or have relationships with or their kids right their extended family and and we because we don't see that, right? We don't know. Well, we just experience whoever we're seeing, you know, at that moment out there in those in those public spaces or those community spaces. So, so no, I, I appreciate that, and I think it's important. You know, we are asking about the people out there as well, doing the work on the front lines. And um, I am curious too, is that you know we've been talking about um, the. COVID-19 rates, right? How much has changed the vaccination, the complications of, of getting uh, the vaccines out there, right? There's not simply enough vaccines to meet the, the demand right now. But what about some of the other issues that um, are associated with this COVID-19 pandemic are, you know, like housing, utilities, we talked about education and childcare before, right? Food, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, health and mental health? And are we seeing any particular issues um, that are more um, urgent uh, in terms of needing to be addressed right now since we last spoke in July of 2020? Yeah, I think personally, those issues all remain on the table. In my estimation, and based on all these conversations we've had, I, I don't 
think that things are better. Um, personally, I have been asked because of some of the homelessness work right. um, that we're also doing as a commission. Like people have reached out directly to be like, hey, so and Alex get these uh, gets these phone calls all the time too. But like, hey, so and so, you know, was just evicted. Um, you know, it's it's too late now. But you know, now now this person is you know staying at a hotel or something like how can you help? And so I feel like I've been getting a lot of those calls on a personal level. And I, I can't imagine that our, um, that our agencies are also getting more of that. Um, we also know that there's some movement um, with, again, like we had a lot of these eviction moratoriums um, with deadlines being extended. So I just feel like it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and I would say all of the issues, um, homelessness, access to food, food insecurity, you know, folks looking for work again, child care, um, digital divide, like, you know, um, issues with educating um, children if you don't have the, the resources at home, like all of it. I think all of it is still on the table. Not to be all doom and gloom about it, but yeah, I, I have not seen any or heard of any improvements as of late. Alexandra? So something that I've been seeing a lot Actually, been people have been writing about it a lot. There was a um, an article last week, I believe, in Democracy Now. Right. Um, and uh, as we're approaching too with vaccination, this um, I think a huge issue too is you know when when a community member passes, right? Uh, whether they're a fluent language speaker or a knowledge keeper or some other type of cultural bearer, like what does that mean for communities in our culture? Um, and there's been I've just been seeing um, I got an email last week about this too of just kind of like. You know, this is forever going to impact community members and living with that stress and fear of these elders passing. I mean, I think that is something that is unique to the American Indian Alaska Native community uh, right now with the pandemic, right? Um, what that means each time COVID-19 takes the life of an elder, what is taken with that, that person's life. Um, and I think that that is something that I'm seeing a lot. I mean, I think people have been feeling it the entire pandemic, but as of late, I've been seeing a lot of people kind of reflecting in various written forms on that. Um, and what I find inspiring is um, I have been hearing, because we've been talking about prioritization with vaccines, right, um, that this, you know, the federal government and county and all these different places are, you know, have prioritization. And what I've been hearing um, tribes throughout the country is that they're prioritizing fluent language speakers and other cultural bearers. And I think that's incredible. Um, and, you know, I, we, I don't know what that would look like in Los Angeles County, but I think it's something to think about um, as we, you know, roll out what equity looks like for this rollout um, and that equity and like who gets prioritized might look different for different communities. And I just wanted to share that because I think it is really a huge part of this crisis and is taking a huge, um, you know, having a huge emotional, mental and cultural toll. I'm curious to know, just given both of your perspectives and the work uh, that both of you are doing, do you see um, any projected changes at the state and uh, particularly at the federal level as there's a change in the administration? And are, are you seeing any indications that there could be uh, a greater allocation of, for example, resources that um, will reach out here to the larger urban indigenous community? Or is it just simply too soon to tell? And, and Andrea, I'll start with you. I mean, I think we hear mutterings all the time in the media, right, of like, I mean, I'm just thinking nationally, and, and this is this is more like applying to the whole population is, than it is specifically um, 
urban Indian health. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, you hear mutterings about like uh, the Biden administration wanting 100 million people vaccinated within his first 100 days. Like that's, you know, that's one thing that he wants to do. Um, you hear about talk another stimulus package um, that's going to happen. I heard at the state level that there might be like a Californian sort of economic relief payment as well. But it, you know, you don't know until these things happen. Alexandra? Kind of jumping off what Andrea shared, you know, just, I mean, we're here, we don't have any more intel than anyone else, but I think hearing about just, you know, the the talks around an additional 1400 to round out the 600 to 2000 you know, that could be impactful to families. I think, you know, just the extension they've talked about within that, the other things that would be part of that package, right, um, about unemployment benefits, um, I do think there has been, you know, Biden in some of his speeches has spoken more about, you know, his his respect and trust in scientists and their leadership. Um, he's also been, I think, pretty transparent about working in concert with states and also taking responsibility for things. So I think, you know, just, you know, obviously he is not president yet, but I, there has been some, at least some statements that are inspiring and and give us hope or at least myself in terms of what potentially is to come mm-hmm. yeah and i just think that to me too it just feels like so much of this just whatever it happens it just needs to be communicated mm-hmm. properly i mean if everybody every american including american indian and indians and alaska natives have been living through this for 10 plus months and to me like getting disjointed communications that you know, get your hopes up for one thing and then they're squashed the next day. You know, that, that's just making this harder for everyone. And so I'm of, you know, the mindset of like, let's give people the proper information at the right times and just keep people in the know of what's going on because, you know, it's, it's just been hard to live with just disjointed information or information that might not apply to us here specifically right now, but not at all over the news. So all I can really do again is, is, um, remind people to always check in on what we're doing here in the county. That will be the most um, relevant information to you and your family members right now who live here. So again, just to drop the plug one more time, vaccinatelacounty.com, again, to check in on where you're at with the tiers and all the information about uh, mega sites, or sorry, uh, mass vaccination sites, et cetera. But I think for me, that's where I try to focus is what's going on here where I live, right? Because LA County is a unique beast. We're very big. We're different. Right. So we can't look at like Modesto as a proxy. Uh, we can't, you know, like we got we to gotta look at what's going on here. We have our own logistical challenges. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves and an interview with Dr. Andrea Garcia and Alexandra Ferguson-Valdez on how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting the larger urban Los Angeles Native American populations and communities. And now back to the interview. And our and we're very decentralized too, right? Throughout LA County, and and that just complicates uh, everything. And for our our listeners, for community members, um, you know, our elders, um, our parents, our single parents, our cohabitating couples, uh, our youth, um, our children. What would be your your message uh, to them at at this time, given where we are? during this COVID-19 pandemic and all of its complications and dynamics. And Andrea, I'll start with you. I would say that even though our community is experiencing 
um, tremendous loss and is moving through grief um, as part of those losses, not only physically, but all of the ramifications that come with the pandemic. I would say right now we're at a point in time where we're experiencing a glimmer of hope. And that glimmer of hope is in the form of, um, in my opinion, the vaccine, right? And so I know that our communities um, historically have a lot of mistrust in medicine, um, in government institutions, et cetera, et cetera. But I also know that, you know, historically our communities have been affected by infectious diseases like my own tribe, like our Mandan people um, were affected by smallpox. Um, and many of our communities through the years, through the decades, have been affected by tuberculosis, through influenza, um, pneumonia. And, and part of the reason why we're here today is because of vaccines, right? Like you don't hear, it's not a common thing for our communities to be dying of things like smallpox, measles, mumps anymore because of those vaccines. And so I, I know it's a hard thing to, to and this is a longer conversation, but... I truly do think that um, this is something that's going to help save our communities, save our languages, protect our elders, protect those who are sick. And um, as a Native person myself and as a physician myself, like I, I had the privilege of getting vaccinated. And to me, that was my way of making sure that all of the devastation in the past that has happened to our communities doesn't happen again. For me, it's um, it's making sure that um, that that we can hold all of these things in one space, but also do something about it. So like, I, I know that there's a, um, of, of side effects, et cetera. Um, but I also know that I, I don't want my family to, to pass away from something that we can prevent. And so that's my, my glimmer of hope. And I hope that when folks have time to, to get vaccinated, that, that they'll um, trust in, in that choice and they'll trust in the science and also, trust that they're doing something for their communities at large so that nobody else has to experience um, the grief that our communities are experiencing now. Mm. How about Alexandra? My message, you know, if and when community members get vaccinated, that everyone remembers to how important it is to still practice six feet, mask wearing, social distancing, you know, we need to do those things in tandem for some time um, and people need to remember that and remind their loved ones of that. So I really want to, you know, just say that and say that firmly of we need to continue to do those things in tandem, even if you get vaccinated. And just to tie back to the message, and I think that's resonated so much with our community is, you know, we're doing all of these things, a mask, staying apart, you know, not hugging our family members for nearly a year and now potentially, you know, getting a vaccine because it's, you know, for our ancestors, for our families, for our future, and just remembering that and help finding that as, you know, a way to stay inspired because it can be hard right now. But um, I think that takes, you know, it is what this is all about. Um, and I think it's hugely important. So thank you both for that. And just um, for listeners, um, and I'll, Andre, I'll start with you it, in terms of uh, contact information or, or resources. Is there anything that you um, that you want to provide a listener social media site or website to any institution or organization for people that want to um, follow up after this interview? Yeah, so um Again, uh, I'm going to stick with Alex's recommendation of, what is it, Al- alexvaccinate.lacounty.com? 
Um, so that's one. But I also want to direct people, if you reside in LA County and you're um, a current UAII um, patient, direct you to their website and also their social media um, on Facebook and Instagram where they can learn about um, how prioritization is being done. And then also just call um, their main phone number to um, figure out how you can get on a wait list or get triage um, to receive the potential vaccine. Um, those would be my biggest two right now in terms of um, vaccination. And then of course for those people who are experiencing the mental health ramifications um, of this, there are a number of um, culturally sensitive um, services that are provided um, at Seven Generations, which is part of UAII, at American Indian Counseling Center, which is operated by the LA County Department of Mental Health, um, and also uh, the Indigenous Circle of Wellness, which is um, a private um, Native-owned um, uh, mental health wellness uh, center. So I would recommend highly those three organizations to talk to someone as well um, about, about what's happening. And Alexandra? Yeah, so, um, but it is vaccinatelacounty.com, which is where you can find out the information regarding your tier. We actually have an infographic of that on the commission's website. So if you Google Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission, our website will be the first one to pop up. There is also COVID-19 response, or um, COVID-19 resources on that website as well. Um, I would also encourage individuals to utilize Instagram to follow the commission at NAI Commission. Uh, we tend to um, cross-promote a ton of other services and programs within the city and the county and other native-serving organizations as well as post up-to-date information there. So that's a good one to follow as well as the website. So again, that's just if you search Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission. And that was Dr. Andrea Garcia, medical doctor and appointed commissioner with the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission. She works with the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, the American Indian Counseling Center, and is a board member for the United American Indian Involvement Center here in Los Angeles County, California. And Alexandra Ferguson Valdez. She is executive director for the Los Angeles City County Native American Indian Commission. They were providing us a COVID-19 pandemic update and how it's impacting the larger urban Native American population here in the heart of the Tongva Gabrino Nation's lands. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
Buffy St. Marie, the song Starwalker, off the album Power in the Blood, here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's show, we're going to hear from a panelist of speakers on fascism in America. The interview is conducted by Marcus Lopez, a executive producer of American Indian Airwaves, and Dr. Fabiana Hirsch. Also on the panel, they interview Dr. William Robinson, author of The Global Police State, which we've spoken frequently about here on American Indian Airwaves. He is Professor of Sociology, Global Studies, and Latin American Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and has authored numerous books, including his most recent book, The Global Police State. The other panelists includes Matef Harmakis. He's co-editor of the book Black Panther Afterlives, The Enduring Significance of the Black Panther Party, and he is a social scientist and teacher in the Santa Barbara School District. And now, Marcus Lopez with Dr. Fabiana Hirsch, speaking with Dr. William Robinson and Matef Harmakis in the first part of this panel discussion on fascism in America. To start the discussion, I've asked our panel, what is fascism? Professor William Robinson starts the discussion. In a nutshell, fascism is a it is an extreme response to capitalist crisis. It was in the 20th century and it is in the 21st century. It's a response which involves an authoritarian and highly repressive state doing the bidding of capital at a time of crisis, uh, and one that involves always a fascist mobilization in civil society, which involves a series of ideological and political positions, including including a racist mobilization, including a xenophobia. And so these three things come together, a fascist, racist mobilization in civil society uh, with the interests of capital at a time when capitalism is in crisis and repressive and reactionary political power in the state. And, you know, of course, is that's precisely and exactly what we are seeing percolating here in the United States right now in this particular conjunction. And Mr. Uh, Mr. Matef. I've always thought that capitalism in crisis was, a, what was her name? Clara Zetkin, in her book, Fighting Fascism, gave a very lengthy explanation, but our palm duck came behind her and said, fascism is the complete expression of the whole tendency of capitalism and decay. And then 10 years later, Georgi uh, Dimitri, his report, 1935, said that uh, fascism is the raw, open, naked dictatorship of the most very segment of finance capital. And it's kind of comical to me that my Antifa friends, especially those that I really hate that uh, last definition, they claim that uh, it does not cover neo-fascism. And I keep asking them, and they haven't given me a good answer yet, have you seen neo-fascism, what they call fascism from below, arise and not be positively sanctioned by government institutions or just from above? To me, Dimitrov's definition is fine. I'm not going to get picky you. But, you know, when I teach it to high schoolers, I give them the elements and then ask, fine, they have no problem. I say, it, first of all, you have to have capitalism. You have to have nationalism, militarism, sexism, race. I just stop there. Some people say there are 13 elements or 17, but for high schoolers, those five seem to cover it really well for them. And they have no problem pointing it out everywhere in history and today except the USA. For some reason, they can't wrap their heads around where I live is fascist. And I ask them, well, with that to an indigenous person, a Hawaiian, how about a poor... Then the conversation changed. 
they have to throw up the false defenses or to say, yeah, it certainly looks fascist. And of course, if you ask a Japanese person who had to do time in prison simply because they weren't white enough during two, yeah, it looks fascist. So the definition period they all boiled down to these elements and these expressions, as I think uh, Dr. Robinson clearly stated. And, and Fabiana? It's interesting to talk about neo-fascism because I never know with these neo-terms. What really looked like it happened to me last week was a basic history lesson of the U.S. from the very beginning. You know, almost like one day summing up all the history. And granted, different players, different actors, different scenario. It's not that it's always the same, but it's amazing when, and I hope we get to talk about this a little bit, who was there and what they represent. It felt like if people often say, like you're saying, Machef, it can't happen here. You know, it can happen every place else, but it can't happen here because somehow the U.S. is exempt. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves and a panel discussion in response to the January 6, 2021 events in Washington, D.C. The panel is on fascism in America with Marcus Lopez interviewing the panelists, Dr. Fabiana Hirsch, Dr. William Robinson, and Matef Harmakis. And now back to the interview. When actually the U.S., it may not have been called fascist at the very beginning because it had different terminology. Incipient fascism was probably part of the system from the very beginning, given what happened to the land, what happened to Native peoples, and slavery, and so on, all the history that most people are aware of. Well, we begin the panel discussion, kind of round um, discussion. We have a lot of individuals within the newscast industry that that talks about even the politicians, talks about an individual act, talks about you know what happened and in, in Washington, D.C., within the capital of the insurgents and about the insurrection of the United States Capitol this a couple of days ago, and different individuals speak out. And we wanted an American in Airways to address this question, and I can't think of a better individuals as the three of you. So we'll go around again, is that why should we talk about that? And maybe your comments of what happened within the insurrection at the United States Capitol. We'll start, we'll start with Professor Robinson. Right. You know, well, one of the alarming things, and by the way, right before we started this interview, I was listening to a YouTube which Mike, that Michael Moore just put out, and it's absolutely alarming. He's reporting that these um, fascist groups, the fascist groups in civil society around the country, have put up posters in all the major cities, but especially in Washington, calling for an armed march, armed marches in the next few days. So by the time this interview airs, we might already see that. But the other thing he's pointing out, which we already know, Michael Moore is pointing out in, in this YouTube, is that this was an inside job in the sense that the police pulled back, the Capitol Police pulled back, the um, D.C. Police pulled back, um, and they invited in these fascists into the Capitol. And moreover, it's clear that there were uh, Republican members of Congress and Senate and their staffers that 
was also part of this inside job. But the larger story behind what we saw last week is that it's been well documented that police forces have, have infiltrated in order to participate in these all of these different fascist movements, the Klan and the Nazis, but also the Proud Boys and QAnon and so forth and so on, and vice versa. These fascist, uh, racist, fascist, white nationalist organizations have also infiltrated the police and for that matter, the armed forces. So it's exactly what I see said, we see a fusion of fascist forces in civil society with the most reactionary and repressive elements of the state, and not just the right wing of the Republican Party, that's part of this fusion, but also the armed forces, the armed wing of the state, which is the police and, and the military. And so we can really say that these paramilitary forces of, of these fascist groups in civil society are really also power state forces. So this is um, extremely, extremely dangerous. And has every, everyone has already pointed out that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, protests were brutally, brutally, massively and brutally repressed. And we saw basically kid gloves, almost, you know, half of the police pat them on the head and took selfies with them. And the other half suffered serious consequences because they tried to block the, uh, the, the, the assault. But Jeff, the questions are why should we talk about that now and what the uses of fascists and what Professor Robinson just indicated about, is there a double standards? What the blatant hypocrisy of America regarding this insurrection and the treatment of police forces, even the enablers of this, talk about them, Atif. What we have seen throughout history is that double standard. We see uh, neo-fascism or fascism from below, instead of linking arms with their fellow oppressed working class members, they link forces with the institution of the ruling class, like the military, like the police forces, and take out their frustration on the most marginalized. I mean, you really don't think there's a connection between snatching babies at the border and sending their parents back back home as if the United States policies back home did not force them to walk thousands of miles for relief, how the response hits them. There's a link from that directly to what happened last Wednesday at the Capitol. I, I'm confused why people don't see this. There's a link between police genocide of unarmed African males specifically, but a lot of females say her name, and to what happened last Wednesday. I, I don't see how people can't comprehend this. And of course, my brothers and sisters overseas say, look, man, the ongoing imperialist project of the USA to create a hegemonic empire over all economics, all resources, all lives is directly connected to what happened in DC. You know, dropping a bomb on the move family, you know, dispossessing the Dan sisters of their uh, livestock, but allowing white nationalists to take over national parks. I mean, double standard, I, I don't know how you can't see it. It's so plain and blatant. You would have to be well, I'll say it this way. My father always said racism makes people stupid. Can't get any deeper than that. Stupid is forever, apparently. Fabiana. Well, I think that there's so many different things going on at the same time, but there's no doubt what you were saying, William, about letting people in. It, it's, you know, people kept saying, wait a minute. How come there's no force stopping these people from getting in? Well, it wasn't just about what place that day, because it turns out 
there was plenty of notice. They were all over social media talking about doing this, whatever you want to call it, insurrection. Really, coup attempt is what it seems more like to me. Because of the 70 million that voted for Trump, they're going to be scattered throughout the society, including in the police, in the military, in the Capitol Police as well, obviously, as we saw by those selfies inside, fooling around with some of the these mob coming in. And so you have that as one piece of it, which is basically saying, if Trump can't get in any other way, we'll just take the place by a storm. And that's that. And that What's really, really frightening, and we're going to see this play out because you get Trump out of office, that's just part one, because this thing continues. Because these people are not going anywhere, and they have quite an agenda. And uh, so seeing that noose, the picture of the noose hanging with the Capitol building in the background, I speaks volumes. I mean, that plus just all the different imagery of the Confederate flag. I mean, it was really a pr at the Nazi stuff, Camp Auschwitz on the t-shirt, a sign inside about Mengele. I mean, I felt like I was seeing a parade of worldwide fascism as well as what's going on in the USA. Indigenous Environmental Network statement uh, that was uh, January 11, 2021. It says that and as indigenous nations and peoples in what so-called North America, we have long history with this settler state, history ripe with genocide, attacks against our respective nations, political uh, systems, lands, languages, and families. And that both, um, and that white, that anyone paying attention can no longer deny their hypocrisy on how the settler state addressed white supremacist versus how they address black, brown, indigenous peoples. We will see no longer be America's president, but the hatred and racism he fed has long been embedded in our society. I want to step back. It's not only that particular insurrection, the act that took months and months to organize internal, outernal, from below, from above, which investigations will still are not addressing that question. But I wanted to focus on the more historical sense you have in the global sense of police state, you have a sense of Black Panther Party, you have a sense of, you know, the revolution movement within this country. What's the background of all this? Because we can't just look at this as Trump, 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 because the 74 million people, half of those individuals, the Anglo-American proletariat, are pissed off. And rightfully so. They're just not right wing. They are a, re a reaction to the present conditions now. If we go back on the definitions of fascism, is is about especially the notion of the, a system that could no longer fascism arises where a powerful working class movement reaches a stage of growth, which inevitably raises revolutionary issues. Now that might not reflect only America on this revolutionary issues or the worldwide revolutionary issues, but yet let's step back now. Trump is a indicator, is a just like what the indigenous people, Afro-American population, and many of the sections of the working class within this country, the Pinkertons, the state, the, the unions that are progressive people in, in the last 50 years of reduced them and their effort of political control and the legislation, judicial, executive branch. Talk about that. This is not just a one individual. We'll start with uh, 
Professor Robinson. I couldn't agree more with what you just said, Marcus. I think that's the critically important point here. There's a mistaken assumption in the popular discourse now that if Trump were to just disappear tomorrow, this threat of fascism would, fascism would disappear. Uh, and that's simply completely wrong. What happened last week in, in D.C. is a harbinger of things to come, and this has been building up for decades now. Even if we put aside fascist impulses in U.S. society since its founding, even if we put that aside, global capitalism is in the one of the probably the worst crisis in its history. It's an economic or a structural crisis which is becoming more and more acute by the day, and it's also a crisis of political legitimacy and capitalist hegemony. But let's put this into perspective because I also want to say, and I mentioned this on an earlier interview with American Indian Airways, it. It is not, it is not that the Democrats are the good guys and the Republicans are the bad guys. It was uh, the Obama years and the Clinton years that delivered us to the doorstep of Trump and this fascist threat. The moment of silence is over. And that was a partial panel discussion on fascism in America. The panel discussion is facilitated by Marcus Lopez of American Indian Airwaves, and the panelists include Dr. Fabiana Hirsch, Dr. William Robinson, and Mataf Parmakis. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests, Dr. Andrea Garcia, Alexandra Ferguson Valdez, Dr. William Robinson, Dr. Fabiana Hirsch, and Mataf Harmakis. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Buffy St. Marie, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.